guess, been, it was part of a new beginning for us as a couple. Yeah. We started going when we were just dating, um, continued when we were engaged. It's like a second home for us, I think. And that's, that's the, um, you feel like you're at home whenever you're there. We fit right in. We could just walk in and yeah. get our coffee, get our food, sit down, chill. And it didn't feel like we were going to be wrong in any way. Like, it wasn't intimidating. We have been going to Community Base since 2013. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we built next door in Stone Creek Ranch. Yes. And um, he proposed a little later that year, <laughs> actually at our housewarming party. And yeah. we um, got married in 2014. A few years later, we had our daughter, Aria. Um, so she's almost three and a half right now. In 2019, January, we were on um, Christmas break. We had just got back from taking our daughter on a little a little trip to Moody Gardens. Yeah, Moody Gardens. Yeah. Um, found out we were pregnant. And um, in March, we found out we were having a little boy. Um, and then Case was born on August 16th. Um, he, we were able to keep him at home and our parents came in from Brenham and he never went to daycare. Um, he was just held by our family and just loved every day. Um, November 16th, we decided to dedicate him at COF. So we you know, invited our family went up and dedicated him to the church. Mark, um, you know, Mark did everything. And then we were talking earlier, we remember Aria just kind of rolling around, spinning around in circles Everywhere. during it. Um, just while Case is just in Chris's arms, chilling. Um, and then a month later, on December 16th, um, we walked in and um, found Case. Um, he passed away. And, um, just remember um, screaming. Chris called 911. Um, Aria came out, and I just remember taking Case and running to the um, sidewalk. Running to the sidewalk into the grass. Called my parents. Thankfully, they live a couple blocks. Came into CPR, um, and he just um, we got confirmation um, from the ME. He just fell asleep, and. Um, Missed expectations. <clears throat> you know, you think about the loss of life, and um, oftentimes when you reflect on that, as you look back, you try to hold on to memories and celebrate the life. When I think about the life of baby Case, it was actually a life of expectations. Everything was still in front of him. And as you reflect and you think and you begin to process things like that, there's really not adequate words. There's not anything that I can say that you can say that makes it better, but it does force us to ask the question sometimes, is this real life? Is this really happening? And I don't know if you've ever asked that question or had that thought, but I know that in this year, in 2020, it's probably a question you've asked. And maybe it wasn't as drastic or tragic as the story we just watched, but we've all felt loss. We've, we feel grief. We feel some frustration, some disappointments because of missed expectations. There's been layoffs. The dysfunction in the marriage seems to be a little more elevated than it used to be. Loss, disappointments. 
You know, if you're someone who at some point in your life you've said, I want to follow Jesus, I want to trust Jesus, you remember that Jesus said in John 10.10 that he came so that we would have life. Not just life, but life abundantly. And when you think about life and the life that Jesus gives that's abundant, and you think about the reality of missed expectations in this current season in life, it just doesn't seem to match up. And you start to ask the question, is God even still working for me? Is God still even um, interested in me? Is church working for me? Is, is church what I thought it was supposed to be? I'm not sure that God has lived up to the expectations that I had for him. And it leaves us in a place of disappointment. And a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in here during this service, the 1130 service. And Mark asked everyone in the room that was going through a difficult time just to raise their hand. And I don't know if you were here that day, but as I looked around, I was a little bit overwhelmed to think about how many people were vulnerable, vulnerable enough to just say, yeah, that's me. But then he asked a follow-up question. He said, how many are going through the most difficult time in your life? And there weren't as many hands up in that moment, but there were still a significant number of hands up. And I started to think because I was anticipating this new teaching series called Real Church, a blueprint for how the church can be the church. I was looking towards this. I was looking towards this morning. I was like, man, maybe we're missing it. Maybe we're teaching, we're about to jump into something that really doesn't matter. Then I started to process and started to think when the church launched. And I began to look back even a little bit before the church really kind of took off, not community of faith in 2003, but the church, the early church as Jesus charged the church. I began to think back to that. And just before the church really exploded and began to send the message of Jesus all around the world, there was a group of people huddled together in a room, locked in a room together dealing with missed expectations, with disappointment. Because a man that they had trusted, that they had followed, had lost his life on a cross. And they had expectations for this man named Jesus. He was supposed to rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, he is dead in a tomb. They're frustrated, they're hurting, they're grieving the loss of something dear to them. But we know how the story goes. If you've been around church at all, Jesus comes back to life on the third day and all of a sudden things begin to change. He spends time with this group of followers, this group of ordinary, um, simple-minded, not elite people. He just begins to spend some time with them and he begins to charge them with what it is they're supposed to do. But the first thing I want us to understand this morning, because I think we can all identify with this, is simply this. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Sometimes I think we wrestle with that. And we think, man, I gotta, I gotta get it all together. Now I think right now, just in this moment, maybe you just need to take a deep breath and just know it's okay to not be okay. We feel that. But in this moment where the disciples weren't all okay, Jesus shows back up in a miraculous way. And after he spent about 40 days with his closest followers, we read in the book of Acts, starting in verse one, he says this to the disciples, in verse eight, I'm sorry, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's saying this to his followers, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. 
Jesus says, hey, I'm about to leave you physically. I'm not gonna be here in your presence, but there's one that's going to arrive. The Holy Spirit is going to arrive and you're gonna be better off with the Holy Spirit than with me in your presence. But he's charging them with a task, with a purpose. Ultimately, what he's saying is he's saying, I want you to take the message of me. I want you to take the message of real life to all of the world. That is church. That is real church. The first thing we've gotta understand is that church is simply this. It's God's primary plan for bringing real life to the world. So that when we ask the question, is this real life? We have an answer that's solid. An answer that doesn't change, that's consistent. And it's interesting, as you begin to read through the book of Acts, this simple group of Jesus followers, they weren't doing this for monetary gain. I mean, there was nothing about this that was about them. It was all about lifting up the name of Jesus because they knew that in Jesus, you find real life. And so what I wanna do today is I want us to look at this, this passage in Acts chapter two to kind of launch the series. But before we can think about a, a corporate, a large group of people as the church, We've got, to, we've got to reflect a little bit on ourselves. And what Peter begins to say in this passage, he, he preaches a sermon. The Holy Spirit lands on this group of people and begins to empower this group of people who are locked in a room a second time, except on this moment, in this time, they're not overwhelmed with fear and disappointment. They're actually looking forward with expectation because they've been promised something. And they go out and Peter begins to preach a sermon. And I read through this sermon this week in the book of Acts and I timed it because I'm like, man, Peter preached the first sermon to the church. Maybe I should pay attention to that because I always wanna get better at what I do. So I need to pay attention to people that already do that. So I timed it, two minutes and 31 seconds. Some of you are like, Wes, you need to take notes. <laughs> two minutes and 31 seconds is your goal. Can you hit it? And I already, I already blew past that. But there's something powerful because at the end of this passage, I want us to look at the end in verse 37, Acts chapter 2, 237 says this. Now, when they had heard this, they had heard this message from Peter, they were pierced to the heart. It says that they, were, they felt this, like a knife to the chest. They, they were overwhelmed by what they had just heard and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They heard something so powerful, so impactful. They said, we've got to do something based on what we just heard. You continue to read on, and it says that 3,000 on this day in this crowd began to follow Jesus, were baptized in this moment. So I think it forces us, it requires that we take a look at what was it that caused them to be pierced to the heart? What was it that Peter said that we can look at and observe and maybe stir us up a little bit to help us process through what it looks like to have missed expectations and to live in this broken, fallen world. Listen, it's okay to not be okay. But the first thing I think we see as Peter begins to communicate is that God meets us there. It's okay to not be okay, but God wants to meet you there. He wants to meet us where we are. In verse 14, it says this, but Peter taking his stand with the 11 raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Look what it says in verse 15. For these men are not drunk. It's kind of random. I'll make sense of that in a second. As you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. In this moment, the Holy Spirit has fallen on these disciples, these, this group of Jesus followers. And they're speaking languages that are foreign to them, and they're speaking them fluently. 
You see, what was going on here is this was the, the celebration of Pentecost. This was the, the festival for Pentecost, which is what the Jewish tradition would do. They would celebrate the post-barley harvest right before the wheat harvest. So it was right in between the two big harvests of the year, and they're, they're celebrating. And thousands of Jewish People have gathered in this place from all over the Roman Empire, from different languages and different cultures, all within the Roman Empire. They've all gathered in this place, thousands and thousands of people. And the disciples are walking around declaring who Jesus is in languages that they've never known before. They've never been exposed before. See, the power of the Holy Spirit was working in them. And so the result of that is the people that are hearing this, they're like, man, these, these fools have lost their minds. They got to be drunk. They had a really good time last night, and they've carried it over into today. And what Peter is saying, he's saying, no, 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 no. Listen, hear me. These guys aren't drunk. He's saying it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They weren't in a church service. They didn't gather to hear this news. But God met these people right where they were when they weren't even looking for him. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever understood that and begun to understand who God is and that God cares for you and that he wants a relationship with you? There was a time, that maybe there was a space, there was a season in your life. And one of the things that I think is um, troubling for us is that um, we have a tendency to think sometimes when it comes to church or when it comes to God is that we got to get all cleaned up and tidy up and make everything look good first. And then we can have this encounter. God, okay, now you can come over. God, now you can be involved in my life. So no matter where you are today, let me just say, you don't have to tidy up and clean up first. Whether you're sitting in this room, whether you're watching online in a space, or you're watching maybe three months from now, as you listen to this, God is meeting you right where you are right now in this moment. You know, if you really want to freak somebody out, as you leave today, or as you get off this online service, make a phone call. And just tell one of the buddies maybe you haven't seen or one of your girlfriends that you haven't seen in a while, say, hey, you know, I've missed you and I just feel like today is the day I need to come pay a visit to your house. So me and my family are gonna come over. I hope you don't mind. We'll be there in about five minutes. Some of you already feel the anxiety from that because if you're on the other end of that phone call, you hang up the phone and you look at your wife or you look at your husband, you're like, oh, snap, we gotta go. And then it is like record time getting the house in order. I mean, you start, I mean, you're, you've never worked together as a team like you have in that moment. It's like, hey, honey, you got upstairs, I got downstairs. Um, I'm, you're sweeping, you're vacuuming, you're picking up. You're like, hey, hey, babe, what do I do with all these dirty clothes? Uh, just, just throw them in the closet, all right? Just get them out of sight. Just, just put them away. Uh, what about all these pillows? She's like, oh, just put them, on the, put them on the couch. They go in this order. And I mean, you are, you are you're lighting candles because it's fall. It's got to smell like pumpkin spice in the house. And it's like, you got to make it look good. And you're almost done. And you're like, oh, they pulled up. And you're like, honey, what about the kids? What do, I, what do I do with the kids? She's like, just put them in the closet. Just put them with the clothes. <laughs> and they get to the door and you open the door and you're like, just be calm. Maybe they won't notice that I'm breathing hard. And you open the door and you're like, hey, everything's calm, neat and clean and collected. And like, it's always like this, fresh bread in the oven, <laughs> everything's perfect. We have this tendency, but that's not real. That's not real life. Like, just show up at my house one day and, don't, and come unannounced. And you'll see real. It's a mess. The reason that I think that's interesting, God meets us there. And as I look at scripture and I think about the life of Jesus specifically, most oftentimes Jesus met people in some of their most messy, complicated seasons of life. Think about the first disciples. I mean, his first encounter with some of them was when they were 
failing at their job. They couldn't catch fish, and they were fishermen. Their family depended on them catching fish. They were struggling in employment, not living up to the expectations of a father in their household. And some of us feel that right now. And maybe it's things and factors that go beyond your control, but we feel that. It's messy, it's complicated, and we think, man, I gotta get this all figured out. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. God wants to meet you there, right there in that moment. You think about the woman that was caught in adultery, that was drugged before Jesus by the religious leaders of that day. A woman who's full of regret, probably disappointed in herself and some of the decisions that she's made. Maybe she's wrestling with insecurity and so she's chasing, chasing after this lifestyle so that maybe she'll feel some sort of worth and value in her life. And in a moment, she finds herself before Jesus the Messiah after being caught in the act. It's an uncomfortable situation. The woman at the well, she's got marriage issues. She's, been walked, she's walked through the divorce multiple times and Jesus has a seat with her in that. It's messy, it's complicated, but God meets us there. Listen, today, online, in the room, God wants to meet us here today. He wants to speak to us, but he wants to speak something specific. And Peter is saying, hear me out. God doesn't just wanna meet us here to pat us on the back and say, you are awesome. Here's your participation trophy. You are a snowflake. Life is gonna be okay because we know that that's not right. That's not real life. So Peter begins to communicate something. Not only does God meet us where we are, not only does he meet us there where it's not okay, but when he does, God wants to tell us the truth about ourselves. He wants to tell us the truth about us. He wants to tell you the truth about you. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really like to be told the truth sometimes. But I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know, sometimes I mean, you've had somebody come up to you before probably at some point, maybe even recently, and they've said, hey, listen, you want to know the good news or the bad news first? How many of you are good news first people? Raise your hand. Come on, participate. I'm not going to call you out. All right, we got some good news. That's more than what we had in the 930 service. What about how many of you are bad news first? Give me the bad news first. All right, there we go. We are a room full of negative Nancys. All right, that's awesome. <laughs> The 9.30 was the same way. I want to know the bad news first, too. You know, I was going to do a poll, and I was going to say, all right, do we want to hear the good news or the bad news first? But I knew it's 2020. There is no way we would land on the same conclusion. We all have different opinions. But I want to share some difficult news for you, because God wants us to know the truth about ourselves, and it comes in two parts in what Peter says. The first thing he wants these, this group of people to know and what I think we need to know this morning is he says that you are wrong about Jesus. He wants us to know the truth and what he's saying is saying you were wrong about Jesus. I was reading this week about this passage and I came across an interview with Bono from U2. And if you don't know who Bono or U2 is, then what are you even doing? Um, just kidding. It may not be your genre of music, but Bono says this, and I think this is relevant to exactly what we're talking about. The secular response to, Christ, to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm the teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm, saying, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying, this is what he says. He says, I'm saying, I am God in the flesh. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric, but we've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. 
We can handle that, but not God, not the Messiah, because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you if you say that. Bono continues, and he says, and he goes, no, no, I actually am the Messiah. At this point, him speaking of Jesus, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my gosh, why is he going to keep saying this about himself? So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, God incarnate, the Messiah, or he was a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could, could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's a little far-fetched. That's the reality of what's going on in the scene. Peter is saying, you, you were wrong. You thought that he was a prophet trying to elevate some sort of religion, religious tradition. You thought that he was a political messiah who was gonna rescue from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Some of you thought that he was a magician who had escaped to Egypt and been influenced by magicians so he could come back and perform magic on behalf of the people that were around him. He says, but Jesus said that he was the Messiah. Jesus said he was to be worshiped. Jesus said he was going to forgive us of our sins. Jesus said, I am the only way. And what Peter is saying in this next passage, he's saying, but you were wrong. Look what it says in this verse. It says, you were wrong about Jesus. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. He's saying, you, you did this. He's saying, pay attention, you got this wrong. And you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, and that's important, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter's saying, you got it wrong. You thought he was just a prophet. You thought he was a magician. A magician. And because of that, it was offensive to you and you killed him. But see, this was 40, 50, maybe 60 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had appeared physically after being dead in a tomb for three days. He appeared physically to 500 people. And the group that Peter is talking to were aware of that. They knew that this wasn't just some sort of hallucination. They knew that the resurrection of Jesus had actually happened. And so they knew what he was saying was true about them. They were wrong. They didn't physically hold the hammer that nailed the nails into the cross to put Jesus up in the air. They didn't physically do that, but he's saying you were wrong and you desired that he'd go away. Have you ever considered that for yourself? Have you ever really considered who Jesus is? It might be the most important question you ask yourself today. Who is Jesus to you? Because you can't afford to get the answer to that question wrong. The second thing he says is this, as he's telling us the truth about ourselves, he says, hey, you were wrong. But he also says, you are responsible for his death. You know, the truth is difficult to take sometimes. This week, I was um, weighing my son because we had a virtual doctor's appointment. So my son, Cam, he's in fourth grade. Um, he's, he's a trip. And so we get into the bathroom because you got to weigh him before you get on this call with the doctors. I don't know if you've been through that yet. It's 2020. Everything's weird. Um, so we get into the bathroom. We get on the scales. And it was interesting. He got on the scales. It showed his weight. He got off the scales, he got back on the scales, and the weight went down a little bit. And he looked at me and he grinned. He's like, let's try that again. And I was like, man, this is, a, this is a good scale. Like, we could sell this. He gets back on, it didn't change. And he's like, all right. He goes, you try it, Dad. How much do you weigh? And I was like, all right. So I'm like, how much do you think I weigh? He goes, ah, uh, 150. I was like, I like you. 
So I get on the scale. He looks down. I look down. He's looking over my shoes. 195. Cam looks up at me. He goes, bro, you need to lose some weight. And just walks off. I'm like, boy, go to your room. I don't want to see you again until dinner, all right? Get out of here. The truth hurts. The truth is difficult to hear sometimes. But what Peter wants these, this group of people to know is not only were you wrong, but you were responsible. And he's saying that, that not just for that crowd, but I think it's important for us to recognize if you go into the passage in Acts chapter two and look at verse 39, it says, this is for you. This message is for you. It's for your children and for all of those far off, which would include you and me today. He's saying we were responsible. What does he mean by that? How was I responsible for the death of Jesus? The scripture tells us this. Scripture tells us in Romans 3, chapter, 20, chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. There's no discrimination in that. And then he goes on and continues to say in Romans 6, 23, he says, but the wages of sin is death. My sin, your sin, is what put Jesus on the cross. He chose that because there was a payment that had to be made on behalf of me on the behalf of you. And maybe that doesn't sit well with you. You're like, man, that's not fair, Wes. I didn't, I, I didn't do anything to Jesus. Don't think about Jesus for a second. Just think about your life. And sin is kind of a word we use in church circles and maybe we talk about kind of lightly, but what is sin really? Because I think it's important for us to understand this. What is sin? The Bible describes sin in three different ways. The first way is this, is that we preferred creation rather than the creator. We like to take the things that God created for good and we begin to elevate them to places that they were never intended to be and we begin to worship those things as gods in our life. Scripture tells us this and it's dangerous because what we do is we take the things that are good, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's money, relationships, self-image, job, whatever it is, we take that and we elevate it to a place that's worshiped in our life. And the only thing worthy of worship is God himself. But when we put something else in that place, everything else in our life begins to subject itself to that. And we begin to look to that to define ourselves. We begin to look to that to begin to defend our peace, to find peace. We begin to look to that to find joy and satisfaction. We look to that to find purpose and direction in our life. And the result of that is sin. And we felt the result of that. We have felt the weight of that in our lives because we've chased after things that were never intended to be chased after. They were actually supposed to point us to a God who loves us. That is what sin is. It's also this idea that we begin to believe the lie that I don't need God. I mean, this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. The serpent shows up on the scene. He deceives Adam and Eve, and he thinks, man, God's holding out on you. You don't need God. You might as well be, be God. We fall in that same trap. We begin to think, you know what? I don't, really, I don't really need God. Like, God doesn't know my situation. This is different. God's good for everybody else and everybody else needs to pay attention. But for me, this, this, this is, I'll, I'll be okay. I don't know that I need God. Or we begin to think that we're in a place where we fail to acknowledge his greatness and we begin to think that we are on the same level. We begin to celebrate ourselves. We begin to become prideful and arrogant. I heard Matt Chandler talking about this several years ago. I'll never forget this because it was relevant in that day, not so much today, but he's talking about Shaquille O'Neal. And he said, you know, we all have a tendency to elevate ourselves to an unhealthy place. And he took Shaquille O'Neal as an example. And he said, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, it's interesting to, that he always goes down the court and when he slam dunks a basketball, he loses his mind and runs up and down the court celebrating how awesome he is. And it's like, dude, you are seven foot three inches tall. 
Like you don't even have to jump to dunk the basketball. Hey, hey, Shaq, make a free throw, bro. And then if you make a free throw, you can moonwalk up and down the basketball court and celebrate how awesome that is. Because he was born with the height. And listen, I'm not cracking on Shaq. If you are a Shaq fan, I love Shaq. I love his personality. But it's just an illustration, an example, so that we can help wrap our minds around this. Because the truth is, is that it becomes offensive. Like right now in this moment, you just heard some guy that maybe you've never met named Wes tell you that you were wrong about Jesus at some point in your life and that you were responsible for his death. And that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And you think, man, what is, who is this guy? It's offensive. But I think God wants us to know the truth about ourselves. And we have two options when that happens. And we have a tendency oftentimes when somebody tells us something we don't want to hear to push them out. But I think it would be important for us to maybe step back and reflect and just pay attention to it and allow it to sit there. You know, Leadership 101 will tell you that as a leader, as a successful person in this world, it would be foolish for you to push everybody away in your life that tells you the things that you may not want to hear. If you do that, you'll find yourself in a place that's unhealthy, that's dysfunctional, that's lonely. And I think that's just something for us to consider right now as we hear this truth that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But I think it's important for us to know this. The fact that God tells us the truth about ourselves gives me confidence that I can trust him. Because he didn't just tell us the bad news. Some of you are like, hey, what about the good news, Wes? The good news is this. God created another way. Not only does he tell us the truth about ourselves and say, man, you blew it. Sorry. But he actually did something about it. God provides another way. He provides another option. There's an alternate opportunity for us. If you go back and you begin to continue to read in Romans, it talks about us being justified, not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. A price was paid, propitiation took place. That means that there was a debt that was canceled. Jesus died in my place so that I could have real life. Even in this broken, busted, dysfunctional world, Jesus gave his life so I could begin to experience him here now, but could continue to live with him forever in heaven one day. There's something strong and powerful in that. But as we think about that, you look at verse 21, it says this, It says, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? From death, from the consequences of the life that I've lived, a life of sin, and the best case scenario for me left on my own is to pay for the life that I've lived. And we don't like to talk about that a lot, but it is an eternal separation from God in a place that we call hell. What is hell? It's a place we go where we spend eternity paying for our transgressions. And that doesn't make me feel good, but God did something. And what it says in this next passage, look at verse 31. It says, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Those two things are important because what it's telling me is that in Jesus, as I begin to place my faith in Jesus, that in Jesus, his victory over death and hell is my victory over death and hell. That's heavy. That's significant, and it would be terrible for us to miss that today, that in Christ, I get to experience what he won on my behalf. But not only that, Jesus didn't suffer, his flesh didn't suffer decay. What that means is every single one of us in this room, we are gradually suffering the decay of our flesh. And you're like, 
18, 19, 23 years old sitting here today and you're like, no, not me. You're gonna be 40 one day and you're gonna be 50 and you're gonna be 60 and be like, oh shoot, that guy's community of faith was right. My flesh is kind of struggling. You're all suffering the gradual slow decay of our flesh because of the result of our sin. But what this verse is pointing to, out to us is what theologians call imputed righteousness. In other words, Jesus's obedience is my obedience. Jesus's righteousness is my righteousness. And when I place my faith in him, God doesn't look at me and look at my life and say, dude, you blew it, you were screwed up, get away from me. He looks at me and he sees Jesus, he sees perfection, he sees righteousness, he sees value, he sees worth, he sees weight, and he says, I want to be with you because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's something specific we need to pay attention to in this. You know, a promise is only as good as the person making the promise. Think about it this way. Let's say that somebody shows up at your house today and they knock on your door and they say, hey, listen, I know you don't know me, but um, I've got a $10,000 check that I wanna give you. And if that doesn't have your attention, not only do I wanna give you $10,000, but I'd like to buy you a car. You can pick any car you want up to $80,000. Some of you, I got your attention right there. You hadn't listened to anything I've said all morning and you just heard new car, $80,000, I'm in. What do you say? Oh, and on top of that, I wanna pay off your mortgage. Like, we're getting a little bit excited in that moment because it's like, man, really? But think about this. Think about the most dysfunctional, busted up, beat up weirdo in your life shows up at your door. Think about that. Who is that person in your life? And you're like, I can't, I can't think of anybody in my life like that, Wes. There's always one. And if you can't think of who it is, it just might be that you are, I'm, never mind, I'm not gonna go there. But if that person shows up at your door and makes that promise to you, you're like, okay, great. You know what? Get out of here, man. You've lost your mind. But if Jeff Bezos shows up at your door, oh, somebody's listening. See, she's listening. You're all of a sudden, you're paying attention to what they have to say. Because Jeff Bezos, this weekend, I looked this up, is worth $175 billion. You gotta turn your iPhone sideways to type that many numbers into your calculator, all right? $175 billion. If he quit, in, if he quit uh, making any money today and he just invested everything at a 6% return rate, he would have $332 to spend per second. That's a little bit more than you and I, just, just guessing. If he didn't work another day in his life, didn't earn another penny, he's 56 years old and he lived to be 90, he could spend $5.1 billion a year. That's a lot of cash. If he shows up at your door and he promises you $10,000, $80,000 and paying off your mortgage, you're paying attention to what he's saying because he has the ability to come through in his promise. I had a friend after the first service, he goes, I'm gonna be ticked off if he comes and that's all he offers me because he can give me a lot more money than that. But you get the idea. Jesus did what only he could do. He has more grace than Jeff Bezos has money. He has more mercy than Jeff Bezos has money. He has more love than Jeff Bezos has money. And Jesus promised his disciples, I'm gonna go to the cross, but I'm gonna come back to life on the third day. He didn't just make a promise, he came through on that promise and the resurrection happened. And it's the resurrection that gives me confidence that I don't have to stay in the place that is true about me. I have an opportunity for something different. God created another way. That is the gospel. The gospel is simply this, Jesus in my place. Jesus did for me what I couldn't do. It's why we celebrated, celebrated baptism just a second ago. 
But the reality for us today is this. Gospel understanding demands a gospel response. To understand this is one thing, but to not respond to it is to actually respond to it. So you're going to respond to what you've heard today. But I would challenge you to respond with urgency because that's what happens. That's why these people were pierced to the heart. They heard this and they said, I've got to do something about this. I can't just sit and not let this impact my life. And they say, what in the world are we supposed to do? And look what it says in verse 38. It says, Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? He says, repent. That means, that means change your mind about God. Stop seeing him the way you've always seen him. Maybe you've seen him as an adversary in your life forever, keeping you away from the things that you think you need the most. And instead of seeing, as a, seeing him as an adversary, you begin to look at him as a loving father who cherishes you, who loves you, who longs to be in a relationship with you, has been chasing after you, is waiting for you to simply come home today. A loving heavenly father, desperate for a relationship with his daughter, with his son. It demands a response to what Peter is saying. He's saying, repent and be baptized. What is baptism? It's an outward expression of an inward change because you've decided to trust Jesus. And what was true about you then is not true about you anymore. And you want the whole world to know that. It's a celebration. It continues on in verse 40. It says, so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Peter said this, and he didn't say this and say, hey, go pray about it. Go think about it. Now, they heard this, and as they understood it, it demanded a response. And I think the same is true for us. It's not enough just to sit about it and think about it and pray about it. Because to not respond is to actually respond. It's to say, hey, God, thanks, but no thanks. The adequate response is to say, God, I lay my life down. I give it to you. It's okay to not be okay, but you and I don't have to stay that way. We don't have to choose to be in that, and there is brokenness, and there is disappointment that's still going to happen, but it's not the end of our hope that we have in Jesus. And for some in church circles, we've waited a long time to respond, and today God is calling you to respond. Puritans used to say it like this, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And for some of us in American church, we have sat and listened to this hope, listened to this message about Jesus, and we've put it off and our hearts have become hardened like clay. And maybe today God is beginning to melt that away. But it's on you to respond. Before we land this plane and we celebrate baptism this morning, I want you to watch the rest of Chris and Shannon's story. I remember a couple weeks after Christmas, it was a very short time, and after Case passed away, we went to church, and Marco, and pastor from Cancun was there, and he was speaking, and I remember crying, and I, I stayed after, I was like, hold on, Chris, I need to share with him how much um, he touched me in this service, but how much it connected um, a couple months before Case passed away. We heard him speak, and it was all about um, God brings you through things to change you and transform you. And I was like, this is it. This is the connection. We cannot let this huge tragedy just be something that is um, negative and, and just leaves us angry or, or, or feeling guilt or anything. And 
what can we do, how can we change to be what God needs us to be. Um, and so I remember staying after and giving him a hug, and I think it was three weeks after Case passed away, and I was like, this just means so much. And um, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing um, everything with us because that's what's, what's helping us hold on. And um, we saw that baptism was gonna be coming up shortly after that. And it was something that we, we talked about we wanted to do together um, because without each other and without God, kind of being at the center um, in our own life and at the center of our marriage, which I never understood why it was so important before this. I was baptized just like Chris was when I was younger, um, but it, it was gonna have a new meaning now. We, it was the only thing getting us through, um, through cases passing, um, besides Aria, like our anchor baby. Um, without, without that closeness to God that we've got, we weren't, um, we weren't stuck in anger, we weren't stuck in guilt. And um, those things still come up, but just having that faith is what it was able to give us peace. Like God has his plan and we're gonna spend eternity with Case. And I think for our own um, kind of individual um, relationship with God and then our relationship with God um, as husband and wife, it was really meaningful to be able to get in that water together and have those words spoken to us. Um, I remember when we got in the water, my, I just had to share with Birdie, we're doing this because our son passed away and the only thing that's getting us through this is our love for God and we know God loves our son and us. Yeah. Thank you, Chris and Shannon, for sharing your story. Um, I do wanna let you know that um, a really cool part of their story that's just recently kinda happened is on August 16th of all days, um, they found out that they're expecting a little girl, and they plan to name that little girl Faith. You know, the thing I love about their story is what they said near the end there is that there was a moment for them individually that they had to own their faith. You see, our response is our response. It's not our parents' response. It's not a tradition that we grow up in. It's our response to who Jesus is. And they both stepped into that. You saw that when they were baptized. It doesn't mean that every story is gonna tie it up in a nice little bow and a happily ever after story. There's still grief and they would tell you that there's still a lot of grief as they mourn the loss, as they deal with missed expectations, but that in Jesus, here's the deal. In Jesus, we have hope beyond what we're experiencing right now. There's an end in sight that we look forward to with great expectation. You heard them talk about that. And so where does this land for you this morning? Gospel understanding demands a gospel response. And maybe you're sitting here today and you feel the weight of that because you recognize you've never responded and God's not calling you to respond somewhere in the future. He's calling you to respond now, like in the next five minutes. And he's pulling at you. He's saying, hey, I, I wanna come in and I want to reign in your life because what I have for you is good. It's for you. He's for you. His love is strong for you. He's not an adversary. He's a loving heavenly father. Would you respond to that today? Would you respond by just saying, I'm gonna lay my life down. I'm not gonna be the number one priority in my life anymore. I'm gonna allow Jesus to be. I'm tired of living for myself. I need to live for something different because living for myself has gotten me nowhere, nowhere that I intended to be. It just got me to a place of missed expectations. If that's you today, would you just pray with me for a second? Let's pray together. If, if, if today you would say, 
I need to respond and the response I need to make today is to simply lay my life down and say, Jesus, I trust you, I follow you. I repent, I recognize what's true about me, but I also realize that God provided another way and I wanna respond to that. So right now, just, just tell God that, say, God, please forgive me of my sins. Tell him, I've made mistakes. Own that. Take responsibility for that. Let him know that you realize you've fallen short, that your life has fallen short. Thank him for sending Jesus. Thank him for giving you another way out. Thank him for loving you. And ask him, Say, God, give me the power to live for you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if that was you today, I know that there's a lot that showed up today. You're planning to get baptized, but in the story, in this historical moment where the church took off, this real church launched, people made this decision and they immediately were baptized. And maybe today you're like, man, there's no way I could do that. I didn't come prepared. You didn't come prepared, but we were prepared. We have everything you need. We have the clothes, we have the towels, we have the masks, the gloves. We have everything you need. We're videotaping it. It'll be live streamed if you want it to be live streamed. It's, we've got everything. There's really no excuse. You're like, Wes, I don't have anybody to go with me. Listen, I'll go with you. In just a second, I'm gonna walk right out these doors and you can follow me. I'll wait for you. Maybe to, to respond for the very first time to who Jesus is in your life and to let the world know that you've given your life to him. So we're gonna sing. For those that maybe you're in a place and you're like, I, listen, I'm a Jesus follower. I don't think we can listen to what we heard today and let that sit in our minds and not respond. So we're gonna respond by singing this last song together and just repeating saying, Jesus, I give you my heart. I give you everything. I surrender. But if you are ready to take that step of baptism, as we stand, as we sing, I'll lead you out. I'll walk out with you and let's celebrate baptism together. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.